Hi, this is Cody Carpenter, and you're listening to Adrian Has Issues. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues, a conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity. Today's guest is Grant Henry, better known as his stage name Stimage. And if you've listened to past episodes, you've probably heard of him. You've kind of been floating around as like this, <laughs> like this phantom figure in a lot of the BGM related episodes that I've done, like the recent one I've done with Mustin about his chill album, uh, The World of Square, and also episode 120 that I did with Lonely Rolling Stars, which you were a brief member for their album Carnivortex. Your career spans decades, so you're a composer, an engineer, and you're known for a plethora of video game cover projects, including Metroid Metal, Viking Guitar. You've also now branched out into TV. Uh, you are a guitarist for the Emmy-nominated animated series Steven Universe, most recently, you've also been the composer of the Busby Pause on Fire game, which dropped back in May for PC, Nintendo Switch, and PlayStation from developer Choice Provisions, who also brought us BitTrip, and the game was also published by Accolade. And I'm super excited to talk to you because, uh, again, you're kind of like my hero in that regard. I hope that's not like overstating things a bit, but... <laughs> No man, it's it's funny when you when you say uh, decades because I'm realizing now when you when you list things out, it's it's I guess it's this has been going on a while, right? Like uh, <laughs> like we were, we were talking about uh, you know listen to the show with Mustin and I feel like Mustin's kind of like my he's like do it he's been we've been riding the same train, you know what I mean? Right, just chugging along this VGM train, except he's sort of in the funk jazz territory, and I, I came from I don't know. Like Van Halen and stuff, you know. I'm like the, I'm like the metal guy, uh, <laughs> doing what Mustin's doing, and 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 here we are. And then things have happened. So a couple of things you touched on early on that I think are pretty fascinating, and much like in the conversation with Mustin, you know, we did talk a little bit about the fact that when he started out, and much like you said, you started out. It's been at least what twenty years, if that. It's 2019. I remember going to the Mini Bosses website in 97. It was the only year I was in college where we had dial up. So we still had we had to dial in to Pine email oh through my the, through God. Out, of, <laughs> out of our dorm rooms and then we had like our our dial up connection to the to the servers in the, in the IT center and then we could go to websites and wait and look at stuff. And uh and I remember going and waiting for this the the old crate themed navigation bar to load on the mini bosses website and downloading their Metroid and their uh, Contra covers. Uh, so the, the big VGM band discovery was like, that was what, 22 years ago. Yeah. Oh my God. So, yeah. <laughs> and those guys, I just saw a tweet from them today. They're still kicking, man. They got a show coming up in LA. And Are you kidding me? Oh, that is fantastic. No. Yeah. They play with um, some younger guys. Now they call, I, I, they, they play with like uh, some kids that get on stage with them and jam and, they're still going, but they, I mean, they, they kind of put the bug in my head, uh, about trying to do sort of my own interpretation of something like that between them and, uh, the advantage and the Neskimos. And then that was all like late nineties, early two thousands. And then, and that's in the rest is history, right? The one ups. Yeah. As of this recording, their new album just dropped, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, I think it was uh, last week. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, it's it's so it's so great. It's uh, fantastic. I, I've I don't I get I've seen them a lot, but I don't get I feel I still feel like I don't see, get to see them enough. I just I see them when I'm able to make it to these conventions and wherever they're doing something. And there are songs on there that I realize I've become familiar with by hearing them play them live, and they just haven't made it into recorded form yet. Uh, and so it's cool to see those. And there's a bunch of new stuff on there too. I actually I was gonna say I'm sorry, but I'm not really apologizing because there's nothing to be sorry for. Only because. I realized we're dating ourselves so heavily with this part of the discussion. You know what? <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. It's like VGMs is you know is is big bigger stuff than it used to be, right? And we can we can be those guys that fussed about walking you know uphill in the snow both ways going to school. You know, we can be those guys. Um, it's just wild the fact that this has taken on such a life of its own. And with your part of it, and like I said, you're the metal guy. And what VGM is always amazing to me is how it sort of splinters off into these various genres. But yet, whether it be hip hop or metal or in the case of like Mustin with like, you know, jazz, a little bit of fusion. like, But yet, there's still such like a love and community within that where it's not too uncommon to have, like, let's say, Megaran play on a stage with, like, The Sins of Erdrick or something where, you know, in other, like, festivals, that might be a little strange, but I think VGM is just this great unifier in that regard. It is, and, you know, I, I think it makes sense that the games are, like, the common ground that everyone has, regardless of the kind of music they like. But I feel like I've been thinking about this, because, you know, obviously you could have a show with Megaran, Viking Guitar, the Vidari String Quartet, and the one-ups, right? Like, you couldn't have more disparate acts there. Right. But it works. The video games do kind of bring everyone to the stage, but everyone's still, even so, I feel like there's something even bigger going on to keep everyone there to watch all four of those bands. You know, I I don't know, like, maybe just the fact that the video games are a part of it make you consider that genre of music more than you would otherwise. Like, would you normally go see a four-string quartet? Maybe not. Maybe not, no. But this, yes, but this, is, this got you there, you know? Absolutely. Um... It's cool. I love it. <laughs> and your influences, talking about your prolific career, I mean, so much of it, not even just metal, uh, also pop and prog, which one of my favorite genres. What would you say attributes, you know, is a tribute to your longevity in this career? Because like any type of creative endeavor, you never know how far your career is going to go. So what would you say is something that's helped you carry on and sort of reinvent yourself time after time? That's a great question, Adrian. You mean like what's kept me going? Yeah. Because, I mean, like I said, it's it's a lot to do even just like one album or one project. But uh, no lie, like even looking at your discography on your website, there's 147 entries. I believe that's the number. <laughs> like that's kind wow. of a lot of stuff. And, you know, like I said, to even get one release out and get enough people to listen to it to then be able to continue. Like it takes a lot more than I think people outside of the industry, if you want to call it that, may realize. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think I think one of the things that has kept me going is that I've tried to never feel pressure to do just one thing. I think I got into this at a time when um, worrying about things like YouTube monetization or trying to follow a trend or keep doing what, you, what you're doing if, if something catches fire. Like there's more pressure for that kind of stuff now than I think there used to be. Right. And I've always just said that, you know, I do this stuff for me first. If someone else enjoys it, 
then, you know, that's, that's amazing. And I, you know, and I've also said that I, you know, I could probably do a cover of, of a somewhat popular new song or a popular old song, but I, I feel like I might have the chops to cover the Tron soundtrack from 1982, right? That's kind of weird. You know, some of those songs are odd and not everyone loves them, but I love them. And I, if I feel like I can handle that, that's what I want to do. Or, or the cover of the Marble Madness soundtrack, something like that. So just sort of following my own interests, I think, has been a big part of that. And um, I, I think that's part of it. A- another thing is being surrounded by really talented and motivated people is another part of it. I've been in a, I've played MAGFest, the big convention out east. I've, I think I've played in maybe five different acts uh, on the main stage just over the, oh, like, just over the years. But like for, and that's not like some, that's not, not, not tooting my horn. I just mean it, it's just happened over 20 years. It's, it was, you know, it's uh, Metroid Metal and Viking Guitar, Lonely Rolling Stars, more recently Retroactive Live, which was, a. Uh, um, a group put together by the, the Brave Wave record label. Last year, I played with Sam Mulligan, who's a chiptune guy. So, like, I'm band hopping, right? Like, I'm kind of con- keeping things new in a way. Right. And so, that's another reason. And then the third thing is, more recently, once the Steven Universe thing started happening, I realized, and I was getting hired to do some podcast themes and other random songs. I'm like, maybe I should just go ahead and give this pro music thing a shot. Because if it doesn't work out, I could always go get a regular job like I had. So I sort of went all in for, for that. And then fast forward and we're now we're talking because I did the music for a new Bubsy game, which it's a very guitarless soundtrack. There's some guitar on it. But so now I'm now I'm jumping genres, you know, so I don't know. I'm just rambling. But I th- <laughs> think it's a it's a lot of different things, I think, that keep someone going over time. I know my, my dad would get tired of genres of music. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I, I remember when I was when I was little, he would go from rock stuff to country for a while, listen to classical for a while. Like he didn't he'd always put music on. But when he I found I watched him get bored with certain types of music. And I've actually found myself doing the same thing now. As someone who is such a huge fan of Prague, I don't know if that's maybe just how your brain is wired, but much like with Prague, it's never the same thing twice. Or it it can be, but it doesn't always have to be. Like, it's a very nonlinear way to approach things. And it's very unexpected. You know, one of the main ideas is it keeps things interesting, right? So, it keeps your, keeps your brain busy. Right. Yeah. And now, I mean, you've got people mashing up all kinds of subgenres and making all kinds of weird new music. It's just a matter of trying to find it. It's really noisy out there. I mean, you're like the biggest of music lovers. You get it. It's just kind of, it's just numbing when you see the number of, of albums coming out weekly. So it's just, you have to kind of hunt for the stuff you really love. But uh, I mean, I, you know, people said this to me before, but you know, your favorite band is out there and you haven't even heard them yet. Mm-hmm. It's totally true. Granted, I jumped on late to the VGM bandwagon. Like, I think probably the first thing I really jumped into was there was a local video game shop that I used to go to at my job, and they were selling copies of uh, Downright Heavy by The Sins of Eric. Yeah. And I was like, this is weird, because I'm like, I mean, it makes sense. It's video games. You guys do video games here, so let me just pick this up. What's the worst that'll happen? It was their boss theme for... No, not actually, it was the regular battle theme for Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, and I was listening to it on the way home, and nearly like beat the ever-loving like crap out of my steering wheel because this was one of my favorite themes growing up and i'm like who's doing covers of final fantasy mystic quest like does anyone even remember that game exists but yet it was just so badass i didn't realize this is a thing that people did and i just fell down this glorious rabbit hole 
Yo, and they're doing it in the style of music that you love already. So it's like, you know, they were making it for you. Yeah, and it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, with your work, let's say with the Busby soundtrack, it's funny that you said that it's not metal, but yet, well, first things first, if you haven't heard the soundtrack, it's available on pretty much like every like music platform you could think of. It is a jam. Even if you've never played any of the games, like just even listening to it just strictly as like an album, it grooves heavily. But yet I could still hear those instances of prog or of pop and even just some of the beats of 32-bit music. In my experiences, usually when it came to video games, I always sort of framed it like, okay, here's your overworld theme, here's a dungeon theme, maybe here's like a soundbite for a game over screen. But I think what you've managed to do here, which is remarkable, and I love that more composers and VGM artists are doing the same thing, where the soundtrack is its own entity that happens to play with the game, but it's sort of even breaking out of the boundaries of what traditional video game soundtracks can be. I'm a fan of music that can exist outside of of games when I listen to to music, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to write something that does that. I think in the, the case of Bubsy, it was... We knew that the songs had to uh, adhere to a certain format. And what ended up happening was the album versions of the songs could be built into songs. Okay. So, so the way levels work in the game is they have a defined beginning and an end in terms of time spent in a level. And they're supposed to end when they end. So that means you don't have to worry. You're not, you're not writing like a 40-second loop. And then, you know, you're figuring out what the heck to do with that when it's time to put the CD out. The songs are like two minutes in, you know, song length. Right. And then it turned out that it, it works. Like it just kind of, it, it works as, uh, they're, they're self-contained jams by the time it's done. So that was cool. And something I did enjoy, something that I always love is when you have like a relative main theme and how a soundtrack references that theme and reinterprets it depending on the situation. Because I noticed a lot of the later songs branched off from the title screen music. I don't know if that was intentional or if that's something that did called for, or was that kind of like your own improvisation? You nailed it. I mean, you've 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 definitely heard it. I remember when it was time to start the project. It's I think every artist probably tells some story like this, but I was literally you're never more inspired than you are in the shower or at two in the morning in bed. Yep. Really, right. <laughs> so it's like two in the morning, and I literally was just in my head. I'm like, bum, 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 and I'm like, okay, I have to go to the office right now. And put this in in MIDI. I gotta get it. I gotta like. I gotta get it out just so it's out. And I so I opened the session, blurry eyed, put that in there, saved it, closed it, and that ended up being the motif for the entire game. So it's in it's it's in the title screen, but it is in different forms, in major, minor, diminished, weird, all over the game. Because um, I I think it's cool when soundtracks do that, and it was a way to kind of carry that carry something through the entire soundtrack when you were changing the style of music pretty often. Right. So you could, t- you know, and the, the title screen's like a bouncy platformer song. And then by the time you're in World 3, it's everything's weird. Or World 2 is all UFO music and you could do a spacey version of that and that kind of thing. Yeah, it gets wild as you progress. And when I started, like I said, I was thinking about, oh, yeah, the, the, the title screen music was brilliant. But then by the time you do get to, like, UFO Research Facility, like, yeah, by yeah. the time you get there, I'm like, what? Wait, am I listening? And I had to go back to the track listing because I honestly, there are times where I'm like, am I listening to the same collection? <laughs> yeah, it gets strange. So the guys, the guys who made the game, Choice Provisions, you've, if you've ever played Bit Trip stuff, you'll know they're weirdos. Absolutely. <laughs> God, Bit Trip soundtrack's so good, by the way. So. You're, oh, you're absolutely right. Like Matt Harwood, who does the Bit Trip stuff, is just a freaking genius. 
so whenever like we get to it, there were there were obviously revisions required for some things, but a lot of they just kind of gave me uh, freedom to do what made sense, and unless there was a real problem with it, I could just go crazy. So by the time we got into UFO land, uh, I was just trying to come up with as many different ways to hijack 120 beats per minute because that's kind of <laughs> what the, that's what the levels needed to be. Uh, so it's like, what can we? What are all the weird things? What, can, what are the, all the different grooves we can inject in here? And then by the end, things just got got completely crazy. But it ends up fitting, you know. We tried to match the aesthetic as much as possible for people playing the game. So, uh, but they kind of let me do what I want. There's some weird stuff. There's even that motif you mentioned. That main melody is actually. I was joking about all the ways we could do it, and for some reason, I envisioned uh, like a sitcom tag at the end of the sitcom when it shows all the logos. Yes, back in the eighty. Back in the 80s, I can't remember if it was after Cheers or something, but there was one that said, uh, sit, Ubu, sit, good dog. Good dog. <laughs> okay. So, you know this. So, I was like, as a joke, I just said, sit, sit, Bubsy, sit, good cat, and then did like a little piano flourish. <laughs> that a is little, amazing. A little piano version of it. Like, it would be at the end of, I don't know, what's the 80s, step by step or some junk, right? I don't know. Some, some right. And then Mike, the owner of the company, sent me a picture, and they had had their artist draw up Bubsy with a frisbee in his mouth, sitting in the in the yard <laughs> with the mansion. And it's in the game. If you watch the credits, uh, at the end of the credits, it, it does the sit Bubsy sit. Good dog. I'll have to like post a link of that in the show notes because again, talk about dating ourselves. Like, okay, <laughs> talking about weird stuff that you find fascinating. I was that person who was both fascinated and strangely terrified. By like those post credit production stingers for sitcoms because some of them were just so bizarre and I, I I never understood. Okay, what was the decision to make this? Yeah, like you know, Ubu was iconic. Much like what was the other company, MTM, with the cat? They just randomly meows. I can't remember. I can't remember. God, I can- there were so many. There was just so many of these weird stingers for these companies, and I just never understood. What what led up to this? Like, what was the idea? Like, this is it. This is the one we need. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny now, uh, advertising and, and comedy is so um, obscure on purpose. They realize they can just get people's attention and, and Geico doesn't have to do with anything with insurance. They just show you weird stuff. And, you know, now when you see, you know, you know, Bad Hat Harry and mm-hmm. Bad Robot and like all the modern ones, you don't, bl- you don't blink because you expect them. But back in the 80s, they were just as weird, but they sort of like took over your child brain because they're very strange and then they're over. Uh, and it's like, I don't, what did I just watch? Yeah. Like, and it was just a brief second and then it'd be on to the next thing and you had no time to process it and it didn't linger. It was just quick enough to get your attention, but let fast enough that way you'd be like, what the hell? Yeah. I think they're probably all, uh, available on YouTube in some form. I bet there's a YouTube channel that is uploaded all of the different famous stingers from the eighties. So we'll have to, what well, we have, we have homework. Right? Oh, now I'm going to search this after we're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, we have to, of course, talk about Steven Universe. Because I knew you Brent, you talked about it just a little bit earlier, but as far as how that came about and your experiences working on that show. I got into it because a buddy of mine, uh, his name is Roger Hicks, but he goes by Recadam. He's a drummer, chiptune artist, game developer guy. He made an album called Band Saga and did a song with myself and with Ivy who is uh, one half of the music team on Steven Universe. Right. And they were looking for someone to maybe do guitar, and Roger said, well, Grant could probably do guitar. And she, I, it was something, she said something along the lines of, I thought all his guitars were just loud, 
right? Because all she heard was my metal stuff. They're like, can you do some acoustic? I'm like, yeah, I can get grandpa's guitar out for the for something. What you got? So we started doing, and this is early in the show, right? Very early on. And then it just stuck. And then the things that make this show, I think, super special is that the music is given priority. Yes. So they, you obviously, every every episode has a song. And then there's the score that goes with it that Ivy and, and Sarashu do. But the song is always given weight and they even if it isn't matched specifically with the animations which a lot of times are are drawn way ahead of time it's it's always been important to rebecca for the song to matter and the music to carry its own weight right not having to make it fit you know 100% in whatever they'll make something work to, as long as the song is given importance and to be a part of that is really special that speaks to a lot of what you normally do is that you know you make music for what makes sense not always adhering to a particular formula because sometimes that can be a little bit restrictive even if it's not intended to be seeing as how you so freeform with bubsy like it makes sense that now with steven universe you kind of had that same approach yeah and there there are times where you know they might need something pretty cut and dry you know we need we really need acoustic to follow along here 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 are some chords you know feel if you have any ideas that's cool but you know we definitely needed to do this much and then other times they'll go it happened more over time. They'd say, hey, here's what we're thinking. Here's what we need. See what fits. And then I would send them ideas and do all kinds of weird stuff on top. And the first time I think that really happened was a song early on called Comet, which is where Greg Universe gets to kind of uh, have a flashback to his 80s rocker days. And I ended up throwing a bunch of lead guitar in there and just uh, like throw, throw a bunch and was like, use any of it you want that you think fits. And they ended up not only using all of it, but making it sort of the, the uh, an important part of the second part of the song, which was super awesome. Oh, nice. Um, so it gave, you know, it showed me that they're into ideas and, you know, not everything works, but been into letting me contribute creatively in, in whatever form possible. And then for, and for the movie coming, I've got an even more important sort of part I'm playing and, and some of the music in that, which is really cool. So it's been a ride, man. It's funny. Time flies. Like... Five seasons are over. I still can't believe that it's been that long. Like, I, I can't where did it, where did it go? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I it's a it's very self contained. Uh, I want more people to see it. I, in my personal opinion, I don't feel like it gets. I don't feel like it really becomes the show that it became until like kind of on into sort of the beginning of season two where it found the footing right um that made it different than all the other shows that have come before it you know yeah because when i saw that that first episode at comic-con and being like this is cute this is fun i want to watch this but then getting deep into it once it really gets rolling with its own lore and i guess finding the comfort and not even just comfort but just the willingness to be daring oh i know because steven universe does some things that blow my mind i don't think i would have appreciated it as much as a kid like i still find it fun but this is a show that is on cartoon network that is i don't know it's hard to put into words but it really is just like lightning in a bottle it really, it really is special. I feel like it's it's an honor to work on a show that you feel should be school curriculum. Like I feel like they should show these episodes in bits to students because I, I like young to kids. I think it's I think they're important. The way they the way it teaches acceptance and a million other things, super important. And it's fun. It's really something. So it's been really fun to be a part of that, and uh, it's been very challenging. I've had to do some really. I've had to play guitar in ways I never had before, so it's been very rewarding as a guitar player. 
Yeah, because I remember one of your tweets, you actually even said as much. It was like, it includes some of your most creative and challenging guitar work and things that you've never tried. Like, I had to pull that tweet, especially because it was funny that that was going to be the next thing I was going to bring up. Because, you know, you've been playing the guitar for years. So to still be challenged this far in, that's saying something. Like, that's pretty remarkable. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on some of those challenges. Sure. Well, I mean, some of them are even basic things like finger picking. You know, I'm I'm not I've never been a big finger picking guy. And if you're a classical guitar player, that's all you do. There was a lot of the requirements there. There was one episode in particular where they needed to emulate the style of a steel guitar. A steel guitar is like a lap steel or or a regular steel is the, the it's like it's like a guitar, but you only play with a slide. The strings are really elevated. Right. You don't fret them. You don't put your fingers on them like you do a regular guitar. And I had to figure out a way. I, I and it, it took about three different tunings for one section of the song and sitting with my uh, guitar strings extra tight to try and pull the strings away from the neck and then figuring out all the different ways to make, to, to pull it off because there was no realistic, like uh, fake instrument version of a steel guitar that sounded real. So just really weird stuff like that. There were several, there's several other ones too, taping strings off and uh, really funny things that were needed. So, <laughs> and, and then, and just, and just cool like riffs, riffs that were written on keyboard that really need to stay but aren't built to be played on guitar uh you know like the way the strings are oriented and the way your your hand can only cover a certain number of frets and if you're if you simply can't play it just like that you've got to figure out how to make it work so yeah there's there's some challenging stuff and also speaking of challenges is there any road left untraveled like is there anything that maybe you want to do or not maybe sure like how to approach it is like is there any like uncharted territory that you're looking at like what what's your everest basically musically oh that's a great question gosh <laughs> i don't yeah, it's a great question no i'm at the top of the hill and now i have to fall and roll down the hill and break every bone is what... No, I'm just... No, I'm just <laughs> I was going to uh, say, this isn't really Breath of the Wild, but I mean, good analogy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I totally run and just jump off and, you know, surf my shield. Whoops. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't have, like, the... I don't have, like, some magnum opus planned, but I will say that there's, there's definitely more VGM arrangement stuff I want to tackle. There's all kinds of weird, dumb side things. Like, I'd love to make an EP of music for my favorite pinball machines. And it, but, but again, it's one of those things where I have to learn how to freeze time before that's going to happen. Right. So arrangement stuff, there's a lot I'd like to do. Maybe not entire games, but at least an album of arrangements, which I've never really done uh, outside of a whole game. And then I would, for original music, I have ideas for, I've gotten more into some of the electronic instrumentation. I've been forced into it through another, some, a lot of projects that aren't even out yet. And then the Bubsy stuff, there's very little guitar on there. I have some cool ideas for ways to incorporate maybe some some guitar styles and, and song types that I've played in the past, incorporating a little more of that and maybe even some vocal stuff because I did vocal stuff many years ago and just sort of fell off of it. Uh, and I have a couple of ideas for things I want to do there. So that's kind of like short term in my head stuff for now. Maybe it'll be a 20 minute rock opera about the Metroid tattoo I'm eventually going to get. <laughs> oh, just like an album based know. on your experiences of just getting it done? That's, yeah, that's it. Yes, exactly. So I have to get the tattoo and then I have to write a rock opera about, I don't know. <laughs> if you got any ideas? Uh, sure. I mean, I have tons. Like, I know you're a huge fan of Tron. 
So, I mean, I think that'd be cool. And especially since, I, you know, Tron is that movie that it has a dedicated fan base, but I'm always shocked as to where it manifests itself because I honestly didn't realize that many people even knew about Tron. I remember when Legacy came out and then all, there were a lot of fans who were like, oh, I remember this back when I was a kid. And I don't know, somehow that one missed me. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, it hit um the people I know it that it, it did hit it, it hit them really hard. But I know a lot of people that never saw the original. I mean, it wasn't as popular it was a Disney film. It was in the white clamshell boxes like all the rest of them, but it wasn't a big it's a weird one for Disney, right? In eighty two. Yeah, but I feel like it should be because it was so weird, or maybe it was just like so left of center that it was difficult to market. I'm not sure, but I figured in the wake of something like Star Wars, that wouldn't have been so hard to sell. You'd think it would have caught on, at least just for the people obsessed with the visuals. Yeah, because even visually, it's it's a great movie, even if the story isn't necessarily your liking. But you got to admit, for early 80s, it, it's still kind of ahead of its time. Oh, it's absolutely, it's incredible. If you ever get a chance to look at some documentary stuff from then and the hand painting every cell, it's just... It's insane. You know, it actually was fun Tron fact for you. Uh, it was not allowed to be nominated for an Oscar in special effects because, what? or Academy Award, because they, the Academy said they cheated by using computers. True story. No way. Yep. That year, it would have been up against E.T. and Blade Runner, I think. Oh, that would have been a stack. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Good grief, man. No, uh, I feel like, I, I don't know, that low-key sounds like a cop-out, like, because they knew, they knew that, and no disrespect to E.T., it's a great movie, same with Blade Runner, again, ahead of its time, but Tron does something that it's just, it's just different, and I feel like if they did that, people would be like, well, there would have been more questions and answers, and like, well, we're just gonna find a way to disqualify it, so that way we don't have to answer them. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> this is already a tough year, so uh, the movie's too blue. It's too blue and pink. <laughs> Get out of here, Blue. We're done. Oh, that's amazing. Something you mentioned before, um, God, it's like you're always one step ahead because I wanted to talk about your love or appreciation of pinball. Oh, okay. Because, oh, God, like there was one I saw on your page. It was a Primus one. And I was like, in what world is there a Primus pinball machine? It's this world. This <laughs> world has a Primus pinball. Like, where do you even find that? So pinball's kind of pinball's having a little resurgence right now. It's nice to see it's it's more popular than it was. The biggest company that makes pinball machines is called Stern. They've made machines forever, and they um they have a design like a let's say let's call it a more inexpensively designed pinball machine that they have um, kind of private labeled. So it's they've made it, but they have made several different versions of that machine with just different art. And sound. So they made one for Paps Blue Ribbon. It's called Paps Can Crusher. And they also made one for Primus. I guess Primus wanted a pinball machine. That seems like a very less Claypool thing to happen. It does. It does, doesn't it? It seems like that's a totally a less. I just feel like he just wake up one day and like, I need a pinball machine. I need a pinball machine. <laughs> oh, that's actually really good. <laughs> play with all my friends. I'm still upset that no one has ever approached him about making a beverage called pork soda. I feel like there's a missed opportunity. Oh, man. That's a great point. Or even like a, what if it was just a, yeah, it needs to be pork soda. You could even make like a pork soda beer or something. Just call it, just call it pork soda. Isn't that the thing? Because I know like everybody seems to have like an IPA, so. 
Yeah, I've had Iron Maiden beer. Why can't I have a Primus beer? How is that, by the way? Uh, it was serviceable. I mean, it was fine. <laughs> I mean, it was fi- it was like it was fine. I think it might have been a little bitter. I don't. Re- I don't actually don't remember what it tasted like. I just remember that I wasn't going to get it again. I guess. Um, Iron Maiden has a pinball machine as well. See, I didn't really get into pinball like as a thing, but I've always just been fascinated at the various machines and just the designs of them. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of like video games in that you... So, like, say the Super Nintendo, right? Right. Every Super Nintendo game you play, you use the same controller. So, every pinball machine, you have the same concept of control. You have two flippers with little bumpers and little lanes, little in lanes, so you can catch the ball and control it. And the games are different. They have different ramps. They have different ways to score points and stuff. And there ends up being something really uh, addictive about pinball in the same way I think Tetris is. Yes. Where in Tetris, you always lose, right? <laughs> and in Tetris, in Tetris, you always are trying to constantly fix your mistakes. That's kind of a thing. There was a Tetris documentary that talked about that. It's like psychologically why people get addicted to Tetris and trying to constantly correct while building something at the same time. And I think with pinball, something about a physical ball on the table and having control over it in the real world, it, it sort of creates a, a height that I don't think video games, it's different than video games. Yeah, now that I think about it, usually with video games, like even like I said, a Super Nintendo or actually well, any game really, you know, the square button like on a PlayStation controller does this, you know, the A button on the NES controller does a particular function, but with pinball, so much like there's a lot more strategy than I think people realize. And I just was never good at making the ball go where I needed it to go. Like if things lit up, like I was excited, but then next thing you know, like the ball would get launched out of someplace and not realizing it was being launched right back at me. And then I'd lose just because I wasn't paying attention because it's almost distracting in a way because there's so much going on. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I actually have to like focus because if, if you get caught unaware, there goes that high score of yours. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, you know the the newer machines are especially complicated. Uh, I think they just do that so because people like to buy them now and they want to have a game with some depth. But if you play a game from you know the '80s or something, you you, you start playing and you realize it's like, oh, if, well, if I hit all three of these little targets, then this thing lights green and I can lock a ball in there. If I do it again, then I get multi ball, and I want multi ball. So you go for multi ball and you fail, and you're like, well, now I got to get multi ball. So you put more money in, right? Right. And then it's just this it's just this loop. That lasts until the end of time. And at the risk of sounding like some old man, I think what was great about pinball and even just arcade cabinets was as you got better, of course, you know, you start drawing a crowd because everybody wants to see just how far is this person going to go. And then there comes the challenges because I at least, well, pinball may have missed me, but I always just remember being that kid who put, you know, the quarter on the the machine that's like, all right, I got next, not realizing that the person you're playing against um lives here um he might actually be a vagrant you know not trying to you know (laughs) shame anybody but he might actually live here and it's maybe their sole purpose of living so they know every combo every attack but you just kind of just pop in the crowds like all right i'm gonna be the guy to take down a dude who knows all of sagat's combos you do not you lose horribly and it's embarrassing so then it's like you have to come back because now your prize hurt (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. You gotta, you gotta you just need some redemption, right? Yeah, because it was easier to do it that way than like get into like an actual physical altercation. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny you're mentioning the in-person element, kind of like with the VGM stuff and, and the concerts. 
there are leagues now, pinball leagues, and you know they'll have barcades and everything where people just are having drinks and eating food. And uh, you know when you're playing pinball with a bunch of people at league, you know when you go to like Magfest, you don't necessarily talk about the things that you do during the day. You don't talk about the work week. You talk about the stuff that you're there for, right? And, right. and same with the, the pinball league, or I guess any league, bowling league, right? Same way. You go and you you talk about what's going on. You talk about strategy. You talk about the game, and that kind of brings people together. And then and what you do when you go home is a whole different thing. So that's probably pretty attractive, too, I think, to the to what's happening now. The barcade scene's pretty pretty big. It's a lot bigger than it used to be, at least in, in cities. Right. You know, I, I, I'm trying so hard not to say pinball wizard because the last thing I need to do is just start singing that for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> no, hey, fine with me. Oh, Go right ahead. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I just think that a lot of it is why VGM and especially I said going to those conventions and I wish I could do more because at least me, I can't speak for you. I can't speak for anybody listening, but I know for me, video games were and especially the music were things I enjoyed. And I enjoyed them with a very select few, but, you know, and I've said this before with other VGM artists on the show, is that being in a public area and meeting people who are also into this thing, there's something about that just, it, it just can't be beat. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're not going to run into people like that. Well, you, you might run into people in your area like that, but to be in such a, such in, in a place where the excitement for the same thing as you is so concentrated. You just can't help but have a good time. Even if you're not even into games. I have, I've, like, I've taken my wife to MAG. She's been to MAG twice. Uh, people that aren't even big gamers, you can't help but just have a good time with good people that are enjoying every, you know, if you're the kind of person that derives joy from being somewhere that where people are having a good time, it's hard to not have a good time right. at, at something like MAG, you know? That is very true. And I think that makes perfect sense. And especially with the things that you've worked on, so much of this stuff like has brought people together. So I can imagine like, you know, like I said, you're trying to toot your own horn, but I mean, you know, let's not kid ourselves. It has to feel good knowing that you're a part of that. Yeah, it does. It really does. I feel very, I feel very lucky because I, I've been doing this long enough that I've been just doing it a long time. And I, I there are a lot of really killer gamer uh, arrangers out there. And and they might, I mean, they there's so many bands that apply to MAG every year. Back when Metroid Metal played for the first time, they got applications, but they weren't getting hundreds and hundreds of applications for bands to play. It was, a, you know, there were only two nights of shows instead of three days. It was it was a lot less noisy. So it allowed me to be able to, to get some band experience in early. And and so it's it's it was a cool time to try and do that. I don't I don't envy anyone attempting to kind of make a YouTube living doing arrangements but i tell you all these guys doing it now have way more gumption and balls than i do like i these these guys work hard yeah uh, getting these arrangements up and and it, with high production values and timely fashions you know like one whatever trend is 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 big at the moment or whatever game's coming out and um uh, i admire i i don't i don't envy them but i admire them uh and i know it's not something i would be able to do personally you know Right. So, but yeah, I've I feel very lucky to be uh, been able to do this as long as I have for sure. Oh, and you know, best of luck and well, congratulations on like the Bubsy soundtrack and also you know with Steven Universe because I said that's forever. You know, they, unless they turn around and change the soundtrack on you, you know that game will always be played and no one's like that's my music on there. Yeah, it's really cool. We'll see. You know, my worry originally doing this 
professionally was that I would sort of empty the creative well. You know, I would run out of ideas or hit the wall. And nothing like that's happened yet. So we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. I'll, I'll be doing, you know, game music work. And then I'll also be doing my own sort of passion project stuff too. So got to keep the balance. Very cool. Um, before we head up, though, is there anything that you could tease or is it still too soon to say? Well, I will tell you something that came out today uh, or while we're having this conversation. There's a label called the Materia Collective mm-hmm. that um, just put a, an album out called Exile, which is a tribute to Supergiant Games. They made Bastion and um, Transistor and uh, Pyre and more recently Hades. And they put out a compilation of arrangements for those games. And I, am, I did Setting Sail Coming Home, which is the ending theme for Bastion. And I did a duet with my wife on it. Get out of here. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that song. And, and my buddy Dan Taylor, who plays bass in Metroid Metals on there. We, we got to play with Darren Korb, who wrote the Bastion music last summer in uh, Houston. And we heard that song live. And we're like, one day we're going to arrange this song. It has to happen. And then a few months later, Materia put up this thing. They were doing this compilation. So we jumped in there uh, <laughs> and, and, and had a reason to, to kind of to put it out alongside the, this record here. So that's kind of cool. Uh, okay. So that's out now. It's called Exile. You can search for Exile and Bastion and probably find it. So Very cool. Well, actually, while you're here, um, so that way people can find out more about you and your... I mean, it's an insane amount of work, though. But uh, if there's any sites that you want to let people know more about your work, uh, please feel free to throw them out. Yeah, yeah. My main site is stemmagemusic.com. And everything is linked from there. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to link it all efficiently, but it's all my stuff's there. I'm probably the most active on Twitter. Uh, at Stemage, and then uh, I have a Facebook account, the Trash Fire, that is Facebook artist pages. Uh, I I occasionally I occasionally post on there, but it's kind of a, it almost feels like a waste of time sometimes, you know, because people don't see it unless you pay money. But uh, it is what you do what you got to do. So yeah, <laughs> website StemageMusic.com and everything else is linked from there. So very much, and thank you so much. It's been like an absolute honor to finally be able to chat with you. As like I said, you've your name has been floating around for so long, and it was on that list. And you know, once the opportunity arose, like much like you jumped on a material collective, I was like, all right, I, I gotta you know get this going. So you, you okay. talked to you've talked to all my friends. You talked to my old band. You talked to stars. So <laughs> it's about. To, we, I'm glad we got to to chat. Right, it's and great. definitely have to do this again. Um, though one more question though. I know this is kind of silly, but if there was any band that invited you to perform for them, active or non-active, who would that band be? Wait a minute. You mean like, like you would you, you would you play in our band? Is what yeah. you're saying? Like John Hughes dream dream band scenario, John Hughes movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> again, let me. Can I date myself at the end of the show too? Well, you just said John Hughes, so I mean, <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? Um, let me. Th- oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know if it would be a. Oh man. That's a hardwood. I don't know. It'd be really fun to play in a really big pro prog rock outfit, like be the guitar player in Devin Townsend band or something. Um, that'd be kind of cool. Oh, that's actually a really good pick. Um, geez, it probably. I'm. I can't help but think of like non VGM stuff because I all my you know like I'll have so many heroes elsewhere. Uh, I could probably put like a super group together of individual. Oh, that would actually no. You know what? That's actually even more interesting. All right. So all right, who do you got? Oh, geez. Okay. I would take the... There's a drummer named Tim Dow. T-I-M-D-O-W. He used to play for this band called Shiner. Shiner is one of my favorite early 2000s bands. He needs to be there. Uh, the bass player would be... It's a guy who passed away last year. Does that count? Can I still do Dream Band? Can I do Dead People? 
Oh, sure. All right. His name's Caleb Schofield. He was the bass player in Cave In. He was unfortunately killed last year. Oh my God, that's right. He did have rest in peace. I had totally forgot that that happened. Yeah, he uh, he was played for uh, for Caven and Old Man Gloom, and and uh, unfortunately he passed away. His best I love be- Caven. best. Oh, I love Caven so much. They they new have now. Uh, they finished their final record. Like Caleb had recorded all his parts. Uh, I think it comes out in two weeks. But yeah, best bass tone ever. Uh, him and I need a guitar player, need a bass player, a tuba player, and a tambourine player. I don't know. <laughs> it's gonna get too big, and a singer. Oh, this is too much work. <laughs> oh, I have no. no idea. I, I've ruined everything. We probably, by the time I'm done, it would just sound like a, like an early 90s post-rock band. That's what it would sound like. And that's perfectly yeah. fine. Like, honest, <laughs> like, I would not complain in the least uh, bit. That's all I got. That is fantastic. You know what? It's like, all right, so I'll, I'll throw Devin Townsend in on that one. There you go. <laughs> He's, he, was, he was in the studio that day, and he heard you guys. He's like, I dig your sound. Let me, let me get on this track real quick. <laughs> That'll work. Come on. Hey, if he's listening, oh, he's listening. Just give me a call. Give me a ring. Right? <laughs> oh, again, thank you so much for weathering that through. Because I, you know what? That's a question I always wanted to ask, like, you know, the bands that I've had on. So, you know what? Congratulations. I think you might have started a thing. All right. I like it. <laughs> I hope my answer was sufficient. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. That will do it for this episode of Asian Has Issues. And we will see you next issue. <laughs>